All right, so remember this? This was about four months ago when we first met. And uh, we're going to go ahead and work through some review now. And I've shortened these from the lectures that are available to you on ANGEL, uh, just so we can get the review. My hope is that we'll get through the first three chapters today by way of review, and then finish up on Friday. We'll get as far as we can. So with chapter one, we started out by identifying the basic characteristics of life. So ultimately, what makes us any different from the other organisms on the planet? And it broke down to nine characteristics, nine specific features that distinguish what is alive from what is not alive. Some of those have to do with internal mechanisms, and some of those have to do with what's our relationship with the external world. So first of those was that we have the ability to respond to external stimuli, we can also alter the environment, sense the environment, and adapt to the environment. And again, all living organisms, whether you are a plant or an alga or a person, you would still retain some of those specific features. Now some of the other ones to take us up to the nine were what we see here. So additional characteristics of life is that we use energy. And if you are a plant, you use light energy. If you're a person, we use the energy that's been converted and stored, so we're familiar with that. We have the potential to reproduce, and whether you are a mushroom or a baboon, you still have that capability of reproduction. And we have very, very specific materials that are not found in organisms that are not alive. We are carbon-based and uh, some of the chemicals that make us up are not going to be found elsewhere. Okay, Maintaining homeostasis. So we have various methods by which we can uh, stay on straight and level. So within a very, very small range of pH, within a small range of temperature, within a small range of other kinds of gas and fluid and chemical balances in our body, we have mechanisms for maintaining that internal environment within a very, very small range of acceptability. And the very last characteristic, the ninth characteristic, is that we have a high degree of organization. And somebody asked me once, well, what about uh, artificial intelligence? Now, don't they meet all the criteria for being living organisms? And the answer is no, they do not meet all the criteria for being living organisms. Although they meet many of them, they won't come in uh, very, very high for the group of them. Now, in terms of organization, and this is one of the characteristics, is that we go from small to large, we go from macro, micro to macro. Ladies. Uh, we go from micro to macro, and we'll start at the cellular level here. In chapter three, we break down to smaller ones. But at the cellular level, we are looking at the smallest unit of life that actually has the characteristics. And um, examples would be muscle cells, nerve cells, heart cells. And you remember that although we have tens of trillions of cells in our bodies, they really only break down to a couple of hundred <coughs> different types that do everything that we ultimately need them to be able to do. And when we have a group of cells, they work together, they work in concert to form tissues, which would be, by definition, groups of cells that share a similar function. 
And some of the examples that we've talked about over the course of the semester include muscle cells, for example, or, or muscle tissue, the connective tissue that we looked at, uh, nervous tissue from that chapter, as well as epithelials as one of the other types of tissues that we were looking at. Now, when we have uh, several different kinds of tissues, but they're working together in a cooperative arrangement towards a similar function, but each one of those tissue types has its own function, then we are moved up to the organ level. And as we're looking at some of the organs, we've talked briefly about the heart, about the lungs, uh, not directly about the pancreas, but we have talked about insulin and blood sugar. So we've sort of talked about the pancreas. Uh, liver, kidney, gallbladder, intestines, and so on and so forth. So we have these uh, various specific organs within our system. Now, none of our organs operate independently. They have to operate with other organs. So here's where we look at organ systems. And even though all of our organs are interrelated at some level, uh, the degree of relationship varies. For example, uh, the, the cardio system, your heart system, and the respiratory system, very, very closely integrated. Doesn't mean it's not also in coordination with the, others, with the other organs to make a system, but some are more closely related than others. And then once we're looking at all the combination of all these organ systems, then we have the organism itself. And for our purposes, we're looking at the human <coughs> organism. We could look at various others, but ultimately in here, we've been talking about human beings. Okay, so um, maintaining homeostasis has been a recurrent theme throughout the semester because that's one of those critical components. And again, we have such a narrow range of tolerance for most of the, the chemical and gas uh, constituents within our body that we really have to have these, uh, these methods for maintaining homeostasis. And uh, we talked about the fact that some of these methods for maintaining homeostasis are conscious. It's cold out, we put on a coat, and some of them are out of our control. They happen automatically within the body. So it's cold out. We start shivering to generate heat. And both of those are responses to the cold, but one of them would be conscious, putting on the coat. The other would be unconscious, beginning of shivering. <coughs> now, we to maintain homeostasis, we have to have various kinds of feedback systems. There are both negative and positive feedback systems. And in the case of a negative feedback system, that means we want to reduce the thing. Okay, we're going into the negative column. We want to reduce that thing that has thrown us off kilter or has taken us out of homeostasis. In the case of a positive feedback system, we want to increase whatever we're short of that is preventing us from being uh, in homeostasis. And this was the, the, kind of the, the system that's at play for that. And we started out with these three different components with the feedback system, regardless of whether it's a negative or a positive feedback. We have the receptors, the control center, and the effectors. 
So the first one, the receptors, again, those are the kinds of uh, the sensory apparatus that we have that allow us to actually uh, monitor the environment and see and to detect the changes that are coming. In the second part of that, the control center, this is where now that change has been received, but uh, a response from the body has to be formulated. So somehow or another, the body has to, it has to be determined how to respond to that change in the stimulus. And then the last one, we have to have some organ or mechanism in the body to actually carry out that response. For example, which is the organ that's going to liberate the insulin so that we can move our, move our sugar into the cells, for example. And this was a kind of a parallel or an analogy that I gave you for that with a security system where we have the security cameras that are the receptors. They're looking to detect change. And in this case, it would be detecting a change in the merchandise by identifying a shoplifter. Uh, second one would be the control center. This is the, the guy in the booth that's looking at all the uh, input from the security cameras, figuring out what needs to be, hap what needs to be happening. And then lastly, uh, the, the, or the, in this case, the security guards would operate as the effectors because they are carrying out the instructions from the control center that were as a result of identifying changes in the stimulus. And one of the examples that we go through constantly, and we've addressed this in a couple of different chapters, is our uh, maintaining homeostasis regarding stress conditions. And when we're talking about the general adaptation syndrome, Remember, we had that first, that first stage, the fight or flight, the adrenaline rush, and then it settled down into resistance. So the body is during that resistance straight stage, trying to accommodate, trying to reach a sta status of uh, homeostasis. And then in the end, exhaustion, I'm out of tools, I cannot beat this thing anymore. And this is what some of that reaction looks like. So we have the influence of stress, and remember that a stressor is anything that throws you out of homeostasis. That could be a nutritional stress. That could be stress associated with upcoming exams and deadlines and so on. Stress could also be a broken leg. So anything that's throwing your body out of homeostasis would be considered a stressor. And that's going to stimulate uh, the pituitary hormones, which are then going to kick the adrenals into high gear and so on. We end up with this whole chemical sequence of events that involves brain chemistry, hormones, and then organ response throughout our body, again, with the goal of getting back to homeostasis. Okay. Another one of those feedback systems that we're familiar with has to do with uh, digestion, and uh, we've talked a few times now about sugar and how your body maintains homeostasis relative to blood sugar levels. Okay. And now the next part in chapter one goes into, rather than uh, natural organizational structure, into an area called taxonomy, which is the way that we wrap our minds around all of those organisms out on the planet that we need to think about which one is related most closely to which. And our organizational structure, 
we looked at first three different domains. And if you remember, within the, do within the three domains, there are two different groups. There are the prokaryotic organisms, or the prokaryotes, and those would include, in our book, they're referred to as eubacteria and archaebacteria. Uh, this, you're likely to see changing very quickly, because as of right now, the whole classification within archaebacteria is under review now, so they're really no longer considered bacteria. Okay, so you may still see changes in that coming on. And the other group, the, eukarya, uh, the eukaryotes or the eukaryotic organisms, uh, represent the other domain of our three domains and would include these various groups. We're going to talk about those a little bit. Now, once we've identified the, uh, excuse me, the domains, okay, eubacteria, archaebacteria, and then uh, this, the other group, the eukaryotes, now we're going to go down into the kingdom level. And you'll notice here that with the, uh, with the, um, uh, the prokaryotes, that these same labels carry down into the kingdom level. Okay? So you're going to use that, that name, eubacteria and archaebacteria, as domains, but also as <laughs> kingdoms. On the other side, however, now we have uh, the rest of the kingdoms that we've been looking at. Algae, for example, uh, the fungi, plants or plantae, and then our group, Animalia. Okay. Now, continuing on, what do you have to do to be in the club? What kind of characteristics are we looking for? And uh, for the kingdom, Animalia, which is that next level down, we have to ingest our nutrients. It means we can't take that light energy and convert it. And if we have to ingest our nutrients, then that puts us in the category of animalia. So whether you are an insect or a giraffe, you still have to take in those nutrients. Okay, next level down, we look at um, phylum. And for our book, that's being presented to us as uh, the vertebrates and the invertebrates. Here we have vertebrata. And that has to do with this hollow uh, dorsal, that is back, notochord, which is a very, very primitive spinal cord. So either that or we have the vertebral column where we have uh, the vertebrae that are protecting that spinal cord. So that moves us into this next level, the phylum vertebrata. Down to class, at class, our class is mammals. We are mammals. And there were some characteristics that I gave you for mammals. And among them, that means that there is placental development. So there's a placenta involved in the uh, development of the young. There's also the presence of mammary glands, if, uh, if we're talking about a mammal. Also hair or fur. And then lastly, even sometimes when we can't see it, there's either a tail or remnants of what was a tail evolutionarily. So with those characteristics then, we would be in that class, mammalia. Next level would be order. And this is where those opposable thumbs come in, or what my child called for a long time, disposable thumbs. Uh, so the opposable thumbs identify us as primates. 
And then we move on down to family hominidae. We are hominids. And then the genus Homo, which has to do with our big, strong, smart brains. Okay, so now down here we've gone through, we are in Kingdom Animalia, Phylum Vertebrata, Class Mammalia, Order Primate, <coughs> Family Hominidae, Genus Homo, and then Species Sapiens, or Homo sapiens sapien. Okay, so as we're breaking down the levels here uh, in terms of hierarchy, this is the way that that would be uh, represented. Okay. Now, next thing we looked at in that chapter was uh, scientific method. We were identifying the scientific method as a way for figuring out uh, problems, figuring out answers to problems. And let's see, we started out here with the top, with observations. And in moving forward with the scientific method, first thing we have to do is notice something about which we are then going to ask the question. And question is right in here between those observations and the hypotheses. So we see something and we ask a question about it. And then as we're trying to come up with a tentative answer to that question, that tentative answer becomes our hypothesis. And then we can make predictions based on that, go ahead and test those through experimentation. And then we collect all of this data and try to figure out what does it mean based on the original question that we asked from those observations. And as we're looking at uh, the possible answers or the possible hypotheses, we have to look at all kinds of different variables. So what are those factors that could change the outcome? Is there a difference in the response based on temperature? Is there a difference in a response based on time, based on age, based on chemical characteristics? All of those kinds of things that could change the outcome would be what we're looking at as variables. Now, in the case of treating human disease, these are among some of our key variables that would need to be addressed. So if we're looking at disease treatment, let's say for um, diarrheal diseases or malaria, or encephalitis, or just the common flu. We have to look at the age and the general health of the patient. So are we going to have a same response with a four-year-old as a 40-year-old as an 80-year-old? So variability there. Are there other um, health problems? So if we're treating somebody who has diabetes, does that person also have high cholesterol or cardiovascular disease that's going to complicate treatment? Even religious beliefs. Okay? Of course, there are some restrictions within religious beliefs where some of our treatment options are not options. So all of those would represent variables for addressing uh, the scientific method regarding human health care. So now in processing all of this information, we have two, we've identified two different reasoning methods. We had inductive and deductive reasoning. And the first one of those with inductive reasoning is we started out with um, a general observation. Inductive for I. I have this condition. I noticed you have this condition. So they're individual observations. So then based on those individual observations, we put all of those into one kettle and say, aha, there must be a rule. And then we create a rule for that or a generalization. Okay? And then the other kind of reasoning 
oopsie, where'd that go? Um, is deductive. So rather than inductive, where I start with an individual observation, now with deductive reasoning, I'll, I'll go the other direction. I'll take that general rule and say, based on this rule, you must blah, blah, blah. So you must fit this characteristic. And uh, then from that, we can move back into experimentation and additional observations to see what fits. All right, now the next area that we looked at as we moved into chapter 2. Nope, that's 12. File, let's try again. Chapter 2 then moved us into a little bit more evolutionary consideration as to you know, where we're humans, where do we come from? How do we how do we fit into this whole uh, whole rigmarole? And that'll take us to where we started out by identifying ourselves in that class of mammals and in the order primates. So remember, it's those uh, opposable thumbs that put us into that area, as well as the presence of fingernails and the way our vision works stereoscopically. All of that is part of the program that puts us into that group of primates. So some of the other primates that we looked at over the uh, course of evolution um, take us back to a couple of hundred thousand years. Now I think I found an inconsistency in the book, so let me point that out right now. Is that with identifying uh, remains of these two, Homo 1 and Homo 2, that was significant because it allowed us to actually have concrete indications that modern man went back approximately 200,000 years. Up until that point, it was only thought to be around 100, 140,000 years, but these are the fossils that took us back a little bit further. Now, it's not that we didn't already have the material in the vaults somewhere, we didn't have the technology to take the analysis to that level. Okay, so we were working with um, old, inf uh, old information, old technology that we were able to update as the information became available. Now this is where I want you to be cautious with the book. Um, because here, with Homo sapien, um, we're looking at, on, if you look at this chart in your book, it's, it's almost indicating that we go back um, almost a half a million years, so 500,000 years. That's not correct. We only go back a little less than 200,000 years. So this line should actually be moved over a little bit. Okay? So just, just be aware of that. Now if we look further at that, same, uh, at that same chart, we did have an earlier version of modern man, Australopithecus. So remember, we're in the genus Homo, our species is sapiens, or sapiens sapiens, and that takes us back to Homo habilis. Now Homo habilis is um, uh, about 2.3 million years ago, but if we go back further into Australopithecus, that's gonna take us back uh, just under four and a half million, 4.3, million years ago that we had Australopithecus as one of the earlier uh, genera besides Homo sapien, or besides Homo. 
And if you're looking at these blocks on the chart, at, at a few points in our history, there were several different species of modern man occupying the planet. Now we can anticipate what kind of problems that might create today if we just use racial differences as an <coughs> indicator of problems that arise through human interpretation. You can well imagine what kind of problems and competitive scenarios this may have set up. All right, one of the um, other ones that we hear about but don't uh, uh, have all the information in yet, may never, is with uh, Neanderthalensis, Homo Neanderthalensis, and whether or not they died out completely or if the gene pool for Neanderthalensis was blended with sapiens. So we don't have enough information to actually answer that question. And uh, some of the theories or some of the hypotheses have been they died out as a result of disease or violence. And the indications or the evidence is really not there to support those hypotheses. So right now, the strongest support looks at through interbreeding that they have just merged with um, um, Homo sapiens. Okay, now, uh, let's see. So what do we have in common with the world around us? And we identified some of the differences, and you heard this theme repeated again a couple of times during the semester, most recently when we were talking about nutrition, and that is energy flow and biogeochemical cycling. And we were actually first introduced to that way back in chapter two with this diagram, where again, we're looking at the sun uh, providing the main source or the primary source of energy, and then through the action of the producers then, that's where that conversion occurs. And as we move that to the consumer level, just like we talked about last week in nutrition, then uh, those materials or that stored energy then gets to turn into action at the consumer level. And along the same line, we also have um, uh, nutrients, we have our decomposers, that as something dies or eliminates uh, waste products, then the decomposers will return or recycle the biogeochemical components. So energy flows, but the other ones, the other chemicals, then are cycling through the system. All right, and we also looked at um, some of the parallels between us at our level and then uh, mechanisms at the larger level around the world. And through our various systems, okay, we broke down what is each one of our body systems associated with, or what's its main function. So we have our skeletomuscular system, support, movement, as well as uh, chemical storage, especially with potassium and calcium. Our nervous system is responsible for receiving information, formulating responses. And you can work your way down through the rest of those. Cutaneous or our skin system, the lymphatic system as protection against uh, disease. <coughs> Cardiovascular, <coughs> respiratory, digestive, urinary system reproductive and endocrine. Now, all of these other systems, with the, re with the exception of reproduction, but all of these other human systems all have as their, as their foundation maintaining homeostasis. And each one of those systems has a different responsibility in terms of that big picture. 
uh, reproduction, of course. We've got to do that if they're going to be more of this. Okay, and let's see, we talked about those. All right, so one of the things that we have come up with is that we are really, really good at modifying our environment for our needs. And that's taken us into some problem areas in the last, especially in the last hundred years, um, because some of our adaptive strategies for making things work for us have resulted in very, very big problems with our resources and use of the planet. So this is where we sort of take that turn into our maintaining homeostasis and what it means in terms of the planetary balance. All right, now the, uh, let's see, chapter three. Chapter three was the chemistry chapter. Everybody's favorite, right? Oh yeah, love that chemistry chapter. Well, a couple of quick things on the chemistry chapter. And you might recall, we didn't go into extreme depth in the chemistry chapter itself, but we revisited it several times in different contexts through nutrition and uh, other, other considerations. But if we look at what are we made of, remember back to those characteristics of life, we're made of chemicals that are unique to us as humans. Sure, was that a hand, was that a question? Oh, oh okay, sorry. Um, now if we take percentages and just grab a thousand atoms in our body, then of those thousand atoms, the majority, or 630 of them, 63%, are going to be hydrogen atoms. We're going to have 25% or 255 of the thousand that are oxygen, 9.5% are carbon, and then a percent and a half are going to be nitrogens. So overall, this is the majority of our makeup, but we also have some of these other chemicals, but in very, very small quality uh, quantities calcium, phosphorus, sodium, some of the ones that we've been talking about, and little <coughs> teeny tiny amounts of iron, iodine, selenium, and just a very few others. So when we're looking at this whole idea of chemistry, remember, it's this whole science of, of making and breaking bonds. And some of the making or breaking of bonds release energy, and some of the making and breaking of bonds take in energy or require energy. So what's going on with that and how do we use it in terms of uh, our regular technology? And here we have just the basic, basic structure of an atom. So right here on the inside, we have the protons and the neutrons. So the neutrons are the ones without a charge. There's no charge associated with those. And then we have the protons are the ones that actually have a positive charge. And then these orbits around the outside, spinning around, those are the electrons. And depending on how many electrons and where they fall into these outer shells, that's going to determine what that particular atom can bond with or can't bond with. And let's see, let's skip that one so we can get over here. Carbon is one that we've, uh, we've dealt with in a lot of different contexts over the course of the semester. And let me jump ahead. Okay. And along the line of those bonds, okay, we talked about one, two, three different kinds of bonds. So we have the ionic bonds. Those are the strongest. 
Okay, those are the ones that it's going to take a lot of energy to separate those two atoms from each other. Covalent and polar covalent, this is where those electrons are being shared by two atoms. And if it's polar covalent, that means there's a charge one way or the other, either a negative or a positive charge, and that's going to influence how it behaves with other materials. And then the last one, these little hydrogen bonds, these are very, very weak, but absolutely essential. So again, if we go back to the rungs on that DNA ladder, those are kept together based on the hydrogen bonds in the middle. Okay, now we have uh, a couple of examples. And table salt, just our regular salt, sodium that we talk about, is one of those ionic bonds. And it's a very, very strong bond that holds the sodium and the chlorine together for, uh, for the table salt. Okay. There was another kind of, not really a bond, but a force. And the example that they gave us for that one uh, was when we see geckos walking across the ceiling. Different from when you see flies walking across the ceiling. They actually have little suction devices that allow them to. But these aren't actually little, little suction devices on this gecko. But as those orbitals, or as the electrons are spinning around, moving around in their, in their orbital cloud, sometimes they're over here, sometimes they're over there, and that little tiny bit of shift in the, in the energy is what allows them to stay attached. It's a little bit of, if you're walking with a full bucket of water, sometimes it sloshes this way, sometimes it sloshes that way. Well, that would, you could think of that a little bit like those electrons, and as they're all moving on one side, if they're positive, then that may uh, allow them to, to connect, to stay up. Fire reactions. Hey, water. Critical, critical water. We had um, some properties, six of them, that are essential to water being absolutely critical to our, to our lives, lives here on the planet. And the six of those included water being liquid at room temperature, uh, that it's a solvent, an excellent solvent, that means it breaks, breaks other materials apart, cohesive and adhesive, high specific heat, high vaporization, and the fact that it floats. And uh, looking at each one of those individually is water being liquid at room temperature doesn't seem very unusual to us because we're, we're very accustomed to that. But most compounds that are similar in, uh, in terms of their weights are not liquid at room temperature, they're gases. And with uh, universal solvent, okay, why is water such a good solvent? And the answer is because there's polarity. So it has a charge in one direction that allows it to uh, break apart other materials. So that breaking apart, breaking apart of the solute, is water operating as a solvent. And we've looked at that in terms of salt and sugar throughout the semester. Uh, another one, cohesive and adhesive. So water sticks to itself, but it'll also accommodate the shape and the size of the vessel that it's in. And if those vessels happen to be blood vessels, then 92% of the content of those blood vessels is water. The water stays together, but it also lines those, uh, those vessels so that uh, we have lubrication there. 
Another one, high specific heat. And on this one, it's easy to confuse high specific heat with heat of vaporization. They're close, but not identical. High specific heat just means that it takes a lot of energy to move that little bit of water up or down a degree. It takes a lot of energy just to change the temperature. Now that's good news for us as living systems because that gives us stability. And high heat of vaporization, this is how much energy is actually required for a state change. Not just to move it by a degree or two, but to move it from solid to liquid to gas. It takes a very, very high amount of energy to do that. And again, that contributes to to homeostasis or to our stability, it's also a source of uh, a lot of a lot of energy. Okay, and ice floating. This has to do with density, and ice is frozen water is less dense than liquid water, which means it's going to float. Okay, uh, let's see pH buffering. I'll let you do that one on your own. Carbohydrates, we've talked about uh, the phospholipid bilayer. Um, we've talked about that one. We're going to hit that one again when we do chapter four review. Proteins, carbs, fats, the amino acids. We looked at all of these in nutrition. So this is just a quick reminder that from chapter three is when we first introduced that, and then we applied it last week when we moved into nutrition. Okay, move, move, move. Okay. Alright, so those were the those were the key characteristics then from chapter three. The unique chemistry that is associated with life and water, characteristics of water you're gonna to want to remember, and then the different kinds of organic chemicals that we looked at at the end. All right, so uh, I will see you guys for the last of the review. Uh